take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 3 this morning. In the final of our seven churches that we're studying before we move on, in a manner of speaking, next week we're going to talk about the churches again. I'm going to give you an alternate perspective that um, is worth considering. Next week will be a little more academic, more of a history lesson in some ways, but I think it'll be valuable to our perspective and our understanding of the Word of God, or at least a consideration therein. Throughout our study, Jesus had mentioned certain churches, all but two of them, perhaps three of them, depending on how we interpret things, were in error. Ephesus had lost her first love. Pergamus had suffered those who had taught the doctrine of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, to commit fornication and to worship idols. Thyatira had suffered the evil prophetess. God does not rebuke the church itself per se. He rebukes the prophetess Jezebel and her followers. Says he would destroy them with death. Sardis had a name which they lived, but they were dead. In each case, we find that God calls them to repent. In the case of Thyatira, he promises to cleanse the church of the prophetess who was destroying it. But there is no other church itself that seems to disgust and frustrate God more than the church of Laodicea. And unfortunately, there's no other church which seems to reflect the spirit of the church within Western civilization today than the church of Laodicea. We study it today, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14 of Revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Laodicea was situated in a valley in the province of Phrygia. Is the southernmost church in the consideration of the seven churches of Asia. Founded in the days of Antiochus II, that intertestamental period time, in this region... Now we call Turkey. It was a city that was of of very little consequence until the Roman occupation in about 190 BC. At this point, the city became enormously wealthy. There was a large and prosperous banking trade there. They exported black wool from Laodicea. And they had a very uh, prominent and well-known medical school there, all of which created a very wealthy Environment So wealthy was the city, in fact. You recall we've talked about those earthquakes that, that, have struck, that struck the region, one in 17 A.D., one in 61 A.D. And with each of the places where we've talked about this earthquake, uh, Ephesus and Philadelphia, I mentioned that the Roman Empire went out of their way to fund the rebuilding of the city. The, the cities were leveled, and the Roman Empire would came, came in and offered the funds to rebuild. So wealthy was the city of Laodicea, that when, in 61, the city was leveled by an earthquake and the Roman government came in and offered to fund a rebuilding project, they refused. And they personally, privately funded the rebuilding of the entire city themselves. That's the kind of wealth that was found in the city of Laodicea. They were self-funding, self-sufficient, wealthy folks. Jesus presents himself in a threefold way unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. 
He first calls himself the Amen. We talked about this in our song, in our first song this morning. Come Christians, join to sing. Alleluia. Amen. We often say the word Amen or Amen, particularly at the end of our prayers. It's a tradition within the church, not something certainly that we have to do, although our Lord Jesus Christ himself exemplified it in his model prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, right? So Jesus exemplified it in his prayer. Therefore, we have taken it as something which we tend to do in our prayers. But of the 152 times that we find the word amen in the New Testament, the vast majority of the times it's not used at the end of, uh, of a, a prayer or at the end of a sentence. It's, it's used at the beginning. It's, it's used uh, and translated verily or truly. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? That's amen, 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 amen. It's verily, it's truly. It's saying something of a truth. It is an, a, a, an affirmation. So Jesus calls himself the Amen. Jesus was not simply a truth speaker. We spoke of this last time we were together. He was not simply a man who knew truth. He is the expression of truth, the embodiment of the truth. Again, we rehash a little bit of, of covered ground. But Jesus said to Thomas in John fourteen six, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus did not claim to simply speak truth or have the truth. Many have truth. Many speak truth. But Jesus is the express image of truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is truth. If it is truth, it is found in Christ. If it is done by, said by, manifest in Jesus, it is true. When Jesus stood before Pilate on the day of his crucifixion, he told the Roman governor at the, in the second half of John 18, verse 37, to this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Notice the synonymous relationship between Jesus Christ and the truth. Jesus calls himself a witness to the truth. We'll talk about this in just a moment. And he says that everyone who is of the truth, everyone who knows the truth, everyone who is sourced in the truth, hears his voice because if it's coming out of his voice, without qualification, it is truth. So Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the truth. I am the verily. I am the let it be so. He then says that he is the faithful and true Witness. Witness of what? Of God. The faithful and true witness of God. Hence, we call him the Word of God made flesh. That's what John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God made flesh. How do we know that the Word here is Jesus? Well, verse 14 clears that up for us. First John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, right? We know that within us the expressions of our mouth are those things which bubble up from the expressions of our heart. Jesus said he is the expression of the Father. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us this, that Jesus, 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the express image of the Father. He is the stamp of the Father. We see on our money, if you were to pull out a bill, the image of, of one of the founding fathers, the image of someone of importance from years gone by. And as we look at that, that is the image of someone's person. That if you have seen the picture, if I were to take a picture of you and to show it to someone else, they have seen your picture. That is the image of you. Jesus is the image of the Father. If you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. In fact, Jesus said this very thing to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He says, if you've seen me, if you've heard me, if you've interacted with me, if you've been with me, then you know the Father. Then you've seen the Father. Then you've been with the Father. And indeed, if you know Christ, you know the Father. Indeed, if you understand the will of Christ, then you know the will of the Father. If you have seen Christ, you have seen the Father. Now, the third attribute that Jesus gives here. He says, I am the amen, the truth, the verily, the let it be so. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. He is the witness of the Father. He's the express image of the Father. He says third and finally that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now it's important that we understand what this means and we understand what it cannot mean. It does not mean that Jesus is a created being. It cannot mean that Jesus is a created being. In fact, we already talked in John chapter 1, right, that the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But it's important to understand that the word being used here, translated beginning, does not speak of something that has been begun, if I can put it that way. It's not the idea that Jesus is the or was the first creative act of God. Jesus is God. Rather, it speaks of Jesus as the origin of the creation of God or the active cause of the creation of God. Jesus is the creator God. That's what this is saying. That he is the beginning of the creation of God. It doesn't mean he was the first thing to be created. It means that he was the thing that began creation. The, the one who began creation. That he is the active cause, the origin of the creation of God. We already read John 1, 1 and 2. And I've referenced it again. Let's continue to verse 3. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is not just the express image of the Father. He is not just the truth, but he is creator. He is creator God. Now, before we continue in the New Testament, I'd like to take a moment to link these verses to the concept that they're intended to teach. Why did John express things the way he did in John chapter 1? Why does he begin with, in the beginning was the Word? Why the Word? Where, what's, what's going on here? And I'd like to trace this through just a couple of verses in Genesis for you to see the consistency of the Word of God as it relates to this concept, the consistency of the Scriptures. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, as we see the creation account, 
The Bible tells us in the, uh, that, that, that um, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And with each of the days, each day is initiated with this statement. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place. Notice that at the beginning of each day, and all, all, all six days of creation are this way, and God said, and then the thing came into being, right? Well, then we scoot ahead to Psalm 33, verse 6. And in Psalm 33, verse 6, the Bible says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Right? So, Psalm 33, 6 says that the word of the Lord is the means by which God created all things. Right? God's not, he wasn't in an alchemy shop mixing together chemicals and then pouring them out. He spoke, and things came into existence. And God said, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Well then, if John is writing to an audience that understands that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and understands the creation account that God said and whether, you, whether they understood that or not, what we know is this. John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. What John is telling us is that the word of the Lord that Psalm 33 says is the means by which the heavens were made is in fact the second person of the Trinity. That every time you see and God said in the creation account, that's Jesus. Not yet named Jesus. That's the Son of God. That's the second person of the Trinity acting in His creative capacity. So in the books of Ephesians and Colossians, the letters to the churches, Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. Jumping into a context here, my apologies. He says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, again, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. To this end, while the language in the English translation could lend itself to some measure of ambiguity, the concept as found throughout the New Testament is not ambiguous at all. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus was not a creation of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Creator. When we talk about the Trinity, that Jesus is a part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You've heard the illustration before. Perhaps if you've heard... I've, I've given the illustration before. Let me put it that way. Let me give it again. Three distinct persons. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. But all of them are God. If you think of it like a ballroom dance where two people are coming together and they move as one and every movement is synchronized so that though they are two individual people, every movement is as one. Heighten that. Add a third person. That's the idea. 
that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, functioning completely in sync, the same will, the same thought, the same intention, the same desire, the same action. There is no division among them. There is no contradiction among them. Three persons, one God, God the Father. Oftentimes I would describe him as the will of the Trinity. God the Son, the enactor of the Trinity. God the Spirit, the empowerer of the Trinity. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God had a desire. The Bible says the Spirit of God moved across the waters, moved in the darkness, and then God said, let there be light. And there was light. We see all three members of the Trinity functioning within the Godhead in order to bring about the creative work. But Jesus is the doer. The second person of the Trinity is the doer of God. Jesus is God. Now unto the church of the Laodiceans, Jesus needed to present himself in this way. He needed to present himself as an authority an authority that can speak, that can require, that can hold accountable. He is creator God. He is the one who is true. He is the faithful witness of the Father. And this is important because this church had become self-sufficient. This church had forgotten where the authority and the power of the church rested. So we read in verses 15 through 17, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. God tells them that by their works, they reveal themselves to be neither cold nor hot, And God describes this state metaphorically as being lukewarm. This condition, which we'll attempt to define in a moment, is abhorrent to God. Lukewarm, being lukewarm is abhorrent to the extent that God says, because you are lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The picture, of course, being that the Lord, as if he were drinking a glass of water, and as he drinks the water that is the works and the ministry of the Laodicean church, the spirit of the Laodicean church, it is, a, it is lukewarm, tepid water. And this is going to become perhaps a, a little bit more uh, of, um, uh, impactful if we seek to understand it within the cultural considerations of the day. But perhaps it is that you've experienced this before where uh, you've been thirsty on a hot day and you go to take a drink, uh, perhaps out of a cup, and that water is neither hot nor cold. It's, it's, it's this lukewarm, tepid um, water and, and there's just nothing in it that's appealing. There's nothing in it that is good at all. This is the idea has no has no nothing to commend it. Now, we're going to flesh this out significantly more to understand where God is going with this. But first I want to define spiritually what lukewarm looks like. And thankfully the text does this for us very clearly. Notice the language structure which we're thinking of here, which we hear. In verse 16, 
the Lord says, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And then we have another because, because thou sayest. There's a clear parallel here, which tells us that God is going to define what it means that they are lukewarm by what he is saying in verse 17. What does it mean that they are lukewarm? Well, it means this, that they say, they think, they believe that they're rich, therefore, uh, and they're increased with goods, therefore they have need of nothing. And they have lost sight of the fact that without Christ they can do nothing. If I were to boil down lukewarmness to a single idea, it would be the word self-sufficiency. A church that believes that Jesus died for them but lives in a self-sufficient way. A church which knows the nature of the gospel as it relates to their eternity, but denies the power of Christ in their daily lives, choosing rather to rely upon themselves, whatever it might be that commends them, whether it be their wealth or their talents or their knowledge, their own sufficiency. To this end, God calls them wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the worst part about it is he says that they don't even know it. They don't even see it. Obviously, Jesus is not speaking in the material sense here. They are not, in the material sense, poor, for they're rich. They're not, in the material sense, miserable, for in, in the material way, no doubt that they have the things that they want. But spiritually speaking, they are living in a spiritual condition of self-sufficiency, which has brought them into spiritual poverty. And God calls this being lukewarm. And he says to them that he would rather that they were cold or hot. And we need to talk about this because this is a curious statement. If lukewarm is a self-sufficiency whereby one judges his spiritual state as sufficient based upon the context of the material, or lukewarm is a, is a, is a spiritual sufficiency where, where one acknowledges the, the truths of the Spirit but he denies them in himself. In other words, he acknowledges that God is his provider, but he doesn't trust the Lord to provide when push comes to shove. He trusts himself. He acknowledges that God is his protector, but he doesn't trust the Lord to protect when push comes to shove. He trusts himself. If that is the lukewarm state, the question becomes, what is cold and what is hot? Now, as we think about this hot, we, we use the term of someone being on fire for the Lord, Right? That, that the, the concept of being on fire for the Lord, that you're hot, right? That, that, that there's a, a, a uh, as Jeremiah would describe it, a burning fire shut up in his bones, right? Th this idea of being hot. And if that is what we, we, we see here, if that's what's being said here, well, then naturally the antithesis to this cold would mean spiritually dead. And one of the, the actually the theory, the, the interpretation of this passage for many, many years throughout a large portion of church history is that that's what this means. That cold means spiritually dead and hot means spiritually on fire. And so that Christ is saying, I would even rather you be spiritually dead because at least the spiritually dead person is perhaps not in the state where he, he thinks he's good but not, Right? Uh, I've often said around here when I've gone door knocking that the hardest people to reach are the people who are uh, religion, religionists. 
they don't have Christ. They don't understand the gospel. When you ask him if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What, should, what would you tell them? They would say something to the effect of, I've been a good person, right? They are hinging everything upon their efforts, their works. They're trying to get to heaven on their own, but they think that they've got it. Right? They've been baptized, they went through confirmation, whatever it might be, and so they think that they're in. And I've said that those people are significantly harder to reach, by my own experience at least, than the people who are dead, because you have to peel away all the error. You have to get them lost before you can get them saved, right? You have to peel away all of the error that, that is flooding around them that convinces them that they're okay when they're not, whereas at least the person who is poor and wretched, who, who, uh, who is at rock bottom, who knows he's a sinner, he's looking for a solution, right? And so characteristically, this has been the interpretation that, uh, that, that within this, God says, I'd rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. And within the context of what I just delivered, there, there's a reason to say, okay, that's, that's reasonable. That's a reasonable idea. And I'm comfortable with that. In a manner of speaking, but there's still something within me that when I hear Jesus talk, that's not comfortable with him saying, I'd rather you be cold. There's still something within me that has always kind of said, why would God say that at all? Why wouldn't God, if God is speaking here and calling them lukewarm, why wouldn't he just say, I want you hot? I want you hot. I don't care about lukewarm, cold. I want you hot, on fire, excited. I mean, that's what he said to all the other churches, right? Ephesus had lost their first love, and what did he say? Remember and return. Sardis was dead, and he said, wake up, get busy. So why would he even add cold here? And this brings us to a second interpretation. This nagging inconsistency, coupled with historical study, has brought a second interpretation. I want to lay it before you. The reason why I'm not, not as comfortable with this is, as I've said before, we need to be careful seeking to interpret the scriptures through history and archaeology exclusively. In other words, that we're hinging our interpretation upon something you must know from history. Because the Bible is our best interpreter. God has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. And to say that we need history or archaeology in order to understand what the Word of God is saying is a very tricky place to stand. It's a dangerous place to stand. To look at somebody and say, because you don't know enough about history, you can't know your Bible, is a false premise. To say, because you don't know, fill in the blank, you can't understand the Bible, is a false premise. But I want to present this to you. Because we have seen all throughout these letters that there has been a historical, geographical element to God's writing. Hasn't there? We saw when Sardis was dead while living that the city of Sardis had never once been overthrown except when the city itself became apathetic because they were on such a fortified position. We saw last week in Philadelphia that the city of Philadelphia was designed, was literally built to be an outpost through whom Greek culture would be spread to the world and God tells Philadelphia, you have an open door to go spread the gospel. We have seen in these churches that there is a connection between the historical, archaeological, or, or, or contextual ideas of the city and how the city functioned and God's message to them. 
The church of Laodicea was in the city of Laodicea, and Laodicea was in a valley. The city was fed by Roman aqueducts, and the aqueducts that fed them, as people have dug these things up, were fed from Hierapolis in the north and from Colossae to the southeast. Both Hierapolis and Colossae were significantly higher in elevation, and if you know how aqueducts work, it's kind of important, right? Because the water has to flow downhill. As we have continued to learn about these cities, we've learned that Hierapolis was a city that was very well known as the character of the city. Thousands of people would flock there every year for their hot spring baths. The water in the pool, even today, in this region, the hot springs in this region uh, stay between 70, uh, 97 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit, so very warm. To this end, the water there was used for healing, as hot water is often very good for, for bathing, as hot water is very good for. It was still drinkable. It still is today drinkable. It has, of course, higher elements of, of certain chemicals, but it's still drinkable, but, but it, was, it was hot. We might understand, then, that the water coming from the aqueducts from Hierapolis into Laodicea was quite warm. Probably smells somewhat sulfuric, those sorts of things. Colossae, on the other hand, was up in the hills. It was not too far from some high elevation mountains, and there were cold springs there with that cool, crisp, high elevation mountain water. Excellent for drinking. Very crisp, very refreshing. The aqueducts that would have been feeding down to Laodicea then, perhaps, might have had this characteristic being cool, crisp, and refreshing. Now imagine then these aqueducts coming from both Hierapolis and Colossae and merging in Laodicea into a common area of water. By the time they would merge together, you'd still have the high mineral sulfuric content of Hierapolis, but you'd lose the heat. And then you'd have the, the, the cleanliness of the water from Colossae, but you'd lose the cold and you just kind of have gross, tepid water. Still sufficient for drinking, but not very good. My uh, family used to drive every other year, at, at, at least, down to San Antonio from uh, my uh, house in Colorado. My grandparents live in San Antonio on my mom's side. And when we were going there, we used to take various routes typically down through New Mexico and whatnot. One time we decided to go all the way down to the border and then across, and we'd stop for the night in El Paso, and then we'd continue on to San Antonio. We only ever did it once, and the only thing that I remember from El Paso is how terrible the water was. You open that tap, it smelled horrible, it tasted horrible, it was just horrible, horrible water, so much so that quite literally we refused to drink it. We went and we got ourselves some bottled water because this water was terrible and we spewed it out of our mouths. Historically speaking, it is quite possible that what God was attempting to do here is to tell the Laodiceans, you are to me what the water you drink is to you. That it is tepid. It is not flavorful. It is gross. A city that merged the hot and the cold, mixing them to become tepid, nasty. Not good for bathing like hot water. Good for the achy joints and whatnot. 
Not good for drinking like the cold, crisp water of Colossae. Becomes good for nothing. Now, as I said, and I say again, I caution you about hanging our understanding of the Bible upon any source other than the Bible itself. The Bible is without question the best commentary on itself, and God has given to us a self-contained, self-sufficient revelation of himself and his will through the Word of God. But I also encourage you to allow the culture of the day and the distinctives of that culture to the degree that we know them to flavor our understanding of the text. Where do we draw that line? Well, in my opinion, we draw it along the line of the spiritual lesson to be learned. If the spiritual lesson to be learned is dependent upon knowing something culturally or historically, I think that that's, that's not right. I think you probably have missed the lesson. The, book, the Word of God is timeless. We know that, that, that uh, what lukewarm means, right? And regardless of whether or not we knew about Hierapolis and Colossae, regardless of whether or not we knew about aqueducts, regardless of whether or not we knew anything about Laodicea and its distinctives, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, regardless of whether or not we knew these things, we know what lukewarm water is, and we know why it's kind of gross. So the lesson is not muddied underneath the historical distinctions that we might make. If the lesson hinged on those historical distinctions, I'd say we've got a problem. Because then there's a huge generation of the church that is no longer able to understand the Word of God because they don't have access to a history book. That's, that's not how God works, right? That's not, how, that's not how God teaches. That's not how, how God functions. That's not the Word of God He's given to us. So the conclusion that the church was apathetic, self-sufficient, allowing the material comfort and prosperity of their time to dull their spiritual senses, that is gleanable whether or not we know anything about the history anything about the archaeology, but that doesn't mean we can't be thorough. That doesn't mean we can't know it and believe it just because there's an archaeological element to it. And so then, if God is saying, I, do you see where this could make a little more sense within Jesus' message that he would rather they be cold or hot? Instead of, I'd rather you be on passionate, uh, passionate and on fire for the Lord or completely spiritually dead. Can you see where, as Jesus is writing to his church, it would make more sense that both cold and hot are something positive, something valuable, something worthwhile? In other words, cold water has worth. Hot water has worth. They have a different worth. They have a different value, but they both serve a purpose. Lukewarm, tepid water has no value. Uh, it doesn't serve either of those purposes. It's lukewarm. It is useless. And I think that that actually conforms itself better even to the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. I feel better knowing that Jesus did not say, I'd rather you be spiritually dead, personally. You take that for what it is. Take it or leave it. I'm fine either way. Let's not split the church over it. As we continue in verses 18 and 19... Jesus then gives counsel. And he says this, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Once again, I'm going to give you some historical links and I hope that the historical links are not what you draw from this message. 
I hope that we draw the spiritual links, but I, I want to teach this thoroughly, and so I'm going to give them again. God counsels them in three specific ways. He says, number one, buy gold tried in the fire. Invest in spiritual riches rather than material riches. He says, number two, buy white raiment. White being a sign, white raiment being a sign of being clothed in purity, in spiritual purity, to invest in spiritual purity, to cover their shame. Number three, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. To invest in spiritual discernment by opening their eyes in faith to the truths of God's word and resting in them. Now once again, if you recall when I talked about Laodicea and the distinctions that made them rich, the things which made them rich, I gave you three characteristics. Number one, they were a heavy banking city. Number two, they exported black wool. And number three, they had a medical college. God says first to this banking city, invest in the gold that cannot be corrupted. Quit investing in the gold that is corruptible and start investing in the gold that cannot corrupt. He says to this city, which was a heavy exporter of black wool, clothe yourself in white garments. Clothe yourself in purity. And then he says to this place where not only was there a medical school, but there are documents that reveal that during this time, the first century AD, there was a man at that medical school and his name was Demosthenes. And he was studying in this school and writing specifically about eye treatment. During this time, he wrote extensively about the cure for over 40 eye infirmities, many of which still have the names, the eye infirmities still have the names that he gave them back in the first century AD. The works that he did on the eyes and on the treatment for them through ointments remained the foundation for the knowledge of eyes for the next 1,000 years of medical history. It's hard to imagine that this was not in, in view here. As Jesus was telling them, invest in riches that cannot be corrupted. Clothe yourself in white raiment and put on your eyes an eye salve that ye may see, that ye may be healed. But don't allow this to distract. I walk this fine line this morning where I give you all of these interesting historical tidbits and you walk away saying, hey, that was really interesting and you miss what the Spirit of God wants to do in our midst this morning. Don't miss it, folks. The point is that they were spiritually destitute. And Jesus tells them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The point was, God was saying, you are not where you need to be. There's problems. You're, you're, you're self-sufficient. You're relying upon the wrong things. You're impure. You're clothed in the wrong things. You're blind. You don't see it. You're living in the self-sufficiency and you, you, you don't even know it. Open your eyes and see where you are. See how you're living. See how your life actually looks to God and then change. Verses 20 to 22. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Christ ends his message with a plea, with a promise that he 
is at the door knocking. Notice this is a promise to the church. This is not a promise to the unbeliever, although certainly it, it is applicable in that Jesus is knocking on the door of their hearts through the Spirit of God. But this is directed toward this church. He says, I stand at the door and knock. They are not out of fellowship with Christ because of Christ. If you feel distant from Christ this morning, I can guarantee you, we, we all know who moved. And it is not Christ. It is not Christ that moves when we feel distant from Him. It is not Christ that changed when things change in our relationship with the Lord. He's there. He has stayed there. And He stands at the door and He knocks and He says, If any man, any man, anyone will open the door, will hear His voice and open the door, He will come in to them. He will sup with them, fellowship with them, and they with Christ. The joy of Christ, the blessing of fellowship, these are not reserved for certain people. Your pastor does not have the inside track to fellowship with the Lord. Your pastor does not have the, the inside corner of a relationship with God. If any man hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and sup with him. If any man hears his voice and opens the door, he offers fellowship. He offers the opportunity to live in joy and in peace and the promises of the Lord. The promises of God, the joy of Christ, the blessings of fellowship, they are not about age. They are not about gender or ethnicity or nationality. The Lord stands at the door and knocks and any man that would open, any man that would open, that would exercise their will into the same, the Lord will Come in and we'll sup with him and he with, with the Lord. As always, our text ends with a promise to overcomers. Not a threat, not a demand that they had to persevere, but those of you who are overcomers in this time, in this place, in this church. Hopeful promise. And Christ says that these overcomers will be given to sit down with him in his throne. You talk to a church that is rich, that is self-sufficient, that has need of nothing, Jesus says, there are things money can't buy. I'm knocking at the door and I'm asking you to see the spiritual riches that are greater than the physical. I'm asking you to see the spiritual health that's greater than the physical. I'm asking you to see the spiritual wealth that's greater than the physical. I'm asking you to see the spiritual blessings that are greater than the physical. And I'm asking you to make a choice for the spiritual. And those who overcome, those who recognize this, they will. Share my authority. I will give to them a throne as my Father gave me a throne. You will sit down with me as I sit down with my Father. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear his voice as he's knocking on the door? Do we as a church hear his voice as he's knocking on the door? One question today. As we close, the Western Church, I believe, I can say this quite confidently, is Laodicea. The question is, are we? I make here a pretty definitive statement. I feel confident in it. I, I'm fine if you want to disagree. If we were to lay down the character of the modern church, I, I, I see Laodicea so clearly in it. Not every church. We're not talking about every church. I'm talking about the spirit of the age. 
We live in one of the most wealthy times in all of history. Poverty is most likely at its lowest point in all of history. Why do we need to trust God when we have so much? Medical advances through the roof. Infant mortality rates down. Why do we need to trust God? When my, with my finances, when there are jobs and social safety nets and any number of ways I can provide for myself. Why do I need to trust God with my health when advancements in medicine have reduced mortality rates and cured so many diseases and private and public services can make them accessible even to the poorest among us? Isn't that amazing? If you ever studied history, do you realize how rare it is that people of, uh, of low means have access to decent medical care? It's not uncommon in our time, though, is it? Someone goes into a hospital, into an emergency room, they can't turn him away. They get that access to care. That's incredible. That's unique. That's unique in history. So why do we need to trust God with our health, with our finances, with our, with, with, with our lives, when our lives are so under control? What about spiritual needs? I have access to more knowledge about the Word of God than any other generation in history. In an age of Google, I can find the answer that I want on nearly any question I would have about the Word of God. Might not be the right answer, but it's an answer nonetheless. I can search the wisdom of generations of Christians. I can listen to or read the preaching of men who have been dead for a century. And I can have access to it in the comfort of my own home. I don't have to go to the Grand Library I don't have to make a journey to the Library of Congress just to find a document. I can do it from my house. I can do it from my phone. We have access to knowledge. You ask me a question and I need to consult the Greek, I don't have to go back to my volumes in my house and pour through them looking for the answer. I can pull out my phone and read it in the Greek, read it in the Hebrew, read commentaries on it right there. Our generation doesn't have a knowledge problem. Our generation doesn't have a money problem in the, in the broader sense. Our generation of the church is rich and increased with goods and has need of nothing. And we don't even realize how spiritually dull we are. All of the knowledge in the world cannot replace a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of the knowledge of the Bible cannot replace taking that knowledge of the Bible and converting it to wisdom and assuming it into our lives. All of our knowledge of what Jesus has promised cannot replace believing what Jesus has promised. You can listen to a sermon, you can listen to sermons 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and listen to a new sermon each time. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sermons online. What I'm doing here this morning, you don't need me up here. I could just put a squawk box up here and I could plug it into a podcast player and we could all just sit and listen all day. Knowledge is not enough, Christian. Having money is not enough. Having the means by which to take care of your health is not enough. We don't realize, as a church, how spiritually dull we are. We don't understand why the people in our churches are wretched and miserable, that we have so much, that we know so much. We don't realize that we're poor and we're blind and we're naked. Our churches read the Bible, but we ignore its precepts. 
Christians ignore the Bible and explain it away. We use modern scholarship not to help us understand God more, but to give us the excuses to explain away what God has told us. God help us all. But I'm not here today simply or even primarily to have us look at the broader church today and say this is a problem. It's always helpful to look outward, at least to understand where we are and where we fit in in context. But as we studied this morning in Sunday school, that they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. We're not here to compare ourselves among ourselves. We're here to judge ourselves by the word of God. All of this is only as good as the degree to which we rest in confidence that we are not among Laodicea this morning. We might be in a Laodicean age, but our church does not have to be Laodicea. You do not have to be Laodicea. The problem, of course, is that one of the side effects of worldliness is blindness. One of the side effects of, uh, of worldliness, as a matter of fact, it's a judgment of God upon those who reject the word of God, is darkness, right? The Bible says the word of the Lord is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. And if we aren't walking by the word of God, we walk in darkness. And that darkness envelops us to where we don't know where we are. We don't even know our position. We are walking in darkness. But thank God that the word of God is still a light. And it shines into that darkness. And if, as we hear the voice of the Lord, as the Lord is standing at the door and knocking, if any man hears his voice, no matter how dark it is around them, no matter how disoriented they may be, unbeliever, walking in the darkness of their sin, unredeemed, living in that state of sinful squalor who hears the voice of the Lord and opens the door, he will come into him. The believer who is walking in darkness because he has rejected the precepts of the word of God and a believer can who is therefore living in a manner that does not reflect the distinctions of the word of God. If he hears the voice of the Lord, the light shining, and he opens the door, the Lord will come into him and will sup with him. Those who are influenced by the world often don't see it because one of the judgments of the rejection of the word of God is spiritual blindness, a dulling of our spiritual senses. And the only solution is the illumination of the word of God through the spirit of God. Laodicea was a church which had fallen into spiritual self-sufficiency because they felt no urgent needs. They were lulled into complacency. They didn't pray for their needs because they could buy them. They didn't run to God in emergencies because they could handle them themselves. They paid for their own city to be rebuilt. They didn't even need the Roman government when their city fell to the ground, right? This was a self-sufficient group of people. Are you a self-sufficient person this morning? Are you trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? Where do you run first? Physical need, medical need, financial need. Do you run to the Lord? And then do you trust Him? Have you ever gone to the Lord, laid it at the Lord's feet, and then waited for His redemption? Or have you simply said, I'm not going to wait. God, help me help myself. And then get on with it. We have our safety nets. Look, and I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm not saying insurance is evil. I'm not saying bank accounts are evil. I'm not saying this. What I'm saying is, where is our confidence? Where is our security? We have a need and we run to every solution and only at the end do we think about God or stop to thank Him. Is that because we don't think God could help? Well, certainly not. I can't imagine that. 
Or is that because we simply don't want to wait on his timing or his plan or perhaps even have to be content with his choices? We have a financial need. We have a medical need. We pursue every end except to get down on our knees and talk to God and say, God, this is your problem now. You've promised to to, to take care of me. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I'm going to get up and I'm going to serve you. Here's the problem with this. It's not just that we aren't trusting God. Such self-sufficiency breeds other problems. It was mentioned in Sunday school this morning. First, self-sufficiency breeds in us a mindset whereby we convince ourselves in some silly way that the things we have are ours rather than God's. Do you know that that's not true? That the things that you have have been given to you by a loving God, and it's all His anyway. If I think that I have earned what I have, my health is sustained by medical science or my efforts, if I think my blessings come from society or government or family or self, then I have... No compulsion to serve the Lord with them because they're mine. I earned them. It's the fruit of my labor. The only compulsion I had to serve the Lord with them is to whatever degree I want to give some gesture of generosity unto God with the things that I have. Foolishness. This is foolishness. Second, it mars the testimony of our walk before the, Lord, before the world. So I have a need medical, financial, whatever it might be, and I flee to my stored-up resources, my bank account or my abilities or my charms or my charismas or whatever safety net I have in place. And sometimes they work and other times they don't. But all along the way, it's a struggle. A struggle to stay afloat, fighting the same anxieties, fighting the same fears, fighting the same troubles, having the same problems as anyone else around me, solving them in the exact same ways. And then I go to show the world the joys of a life in Christ. And here's the problem. I don't look any different. I might talk different, but when push comes to shove, there's no difference. I solve my problems the same way. I run to the same solutions, and I have about the same success rate. The difference being, when they have a success, they say, well, that worked out well. When I have a success, I say, well, God did that. Same success. What about when failures come? They say, wow, that was a bummer. We say, well, God had another plan. Same thing, though. Is this really normal? What does my faith actually offer if it, if, if it doesn't change anything in the way I live? If it doesn't change anything in the way I think? If it doesn't change anything in the way I act? If it doesn't change anything in what I'm trusting in? If it doesn't change anything about how I'm going about living this life? Now, whether you have money or not is not the issue. The issue is where is your confidence? Whether you have resources or not is not the issue. The issue is where is your trust? Whether or not you have safety nets is not the issue. The issue is where is your security actually placed? Does your security, do your feelings of security and confidence dissolve when your solutions fail? If so, then you're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in the wrong thing. See, because here's the thing. God has not changed. I had money yesterday. I don't have money today. I serve the same God. I had health yesterday. I don't have health today, but I serve the same God. The most important thing in my life has not changed unless it's not the most important thing in my life. And then my life crumbles because what I've been standing on is not the Lord. 
If the prosperity of our time and of our place forms the basis for our confidence and our trust and our security, then there is at least a little bit of Laodicea in you. God uses money, but he doesn't need money. God uses resources, but he doesn't need resources. God uses safety nets, but he doesn't need safety nets. And God help us. Western Christianity is so stuck on the same priorities in these matters as the world, it's a miracle God has been able to use us at all. Harsh though it may sound. And it comes down to this. Are we actually trusting God? Or are we, as the church of Laodicea, rich and increased with goods, having need of nothing, we have invited God into our lives to play the part that we allow him to play, giving him the portions that we've allowed him to have. God, I'll take care of the rest. I have a job right now. I have good insurance right now. I have a nice bank account right now. So God, I, I'm, I'm okay. We don't think to thank him. We don't think to ask provision when we pray and thank the Lord for the food. Uh, it's just kind of a thing we do. It's not actually saying, God, I may not have a meal on my plate the next time. Thank you for this one. God, you have given me this. It can be hard for our children to understand that God has given them everything when we go to Walmart, and Walmart gives them everything, right? But it's a mindset. It doesn't mean we stop going to Walmart. It just means we need to help our children understand that, no, everything that has been given to us is, is the Lord's. It's of the Lord. It's been given, and by the way, if he took it away, wouldn't change a thing in his faithfulness. Wouldn't change a thing in his goodness. Wouldn't change a thing in him and his love toward me. Let's heed the words of Matthew, chapter 6, the words of Jesus. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus said this, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me repeat that verse, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure this morning? Verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. If your eyes are open, your body will be full of light. But if thine eyes be evil, if they're closed, if they're damaged, if you can't see, if you're walking in darkness and you don't have light, if you don't have the light of life, if you're not walking in light of the word of God, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. It's not just that you won't be able to see the next step. You won't be able to orient yourself to the world. You won't see. You'll be blind. You'll be in darkness and you won't even understand where you're going wrong. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? 24, no man can serve two masters. For either he will love the one, excuse me, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Ye can't have them both, folks. We need to make a choice. You can't be lukewarm. You can't sit on the fence. You can't say I serve God and mammon at the same time. You can't give lip service to God and serve mammon and think that you're okay. God will spew you out of his mouth. 25, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Time to change our mindset. Is not the life more than meat 
and the body more than raiment. There's more to, to life, folks. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment, clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, Jesus speaking here, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, something so fleeting, something so tendential, something so temporary, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Those are the world's problems. For your heavenly Father knoweth ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. These verses are not saying that you can take the money that you earn and you can spend it on frivolous things and you can sit on the couch and eat potato chips and just say, okay, God, it's your turn. You have to take care of me. No. God uses our means, our abilities. He expects us to be faithful with the things he's given to us. If you've been given much and you've wasted it, that's not God's fault. But this is a mindset which says this. I don't need to be a part of the rat race. I don't need to spend my life worrying about more and more and more. Not only do I not need to, but if I have this thought, I am falsely oriented to Christ. Because the treasures that we should care about, the treasures that truly matter, believer, are the ones that are laid up in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves cannot break through nor steal. How do you know where you're laying them up? Well, where are your treasures? Because that's where your heart is. I exhort you today to honestly and thoughtfully consider the verses which we've read. The teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ about the relationship between the believer and the world, the things of this world, the material things within this world. And to answer the question about whether or not your life and the lives of your family reflect this kind of faith and these kinds of priorities. Don't just dismiss this. Don't just say, well, I'm okay and quickly skirt past this. Even if you are, even if you're doing well here, Take the time to inspect yourself because what Laodicea did is they thought they were full and they thought they were rich and they thought they had need of nothing and God said, here's the thing, you're blind and you're poor and you're wretched and you're naked. Are you living in the joy of trust and reliance upon the Lord today? Is a life of faith your life? Or are you hiding your spiritual and emotional fragility behind the prosperity of our society and our culture. If all failed you, if your bank accounts failed you and your health system failed you and your safety nets failed you, would you falter or would your faith and your confidence in the unchanging Lord remain because your faith does not rest in the things of this life, but it rests in the God that gave you life? Are you experiencing in your heart today what we might call the rebuke of the Lord in the manner that you're living or are you experiencing confidence as we read about Laodicea? Don't allow your pride to cause you to ignore this, this problem. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord because whom the Lord loves, 
He corrects, even as the Father, the Son, in whom he, he is well pleased. So what did the Lord tell the church of Laodicea? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He's standing at the door. He's knocking. He wants more with you. He wants a better relationship with you. He wants you closer. He wants to draw you nigh. Will you hear his voice and open the door? Laodicea was a church of wealth and prosperity and comfort. And they had, because of this, become lukewarm. Are you experiencing the joys of Christ today outside of, apart from, without the considerations of your financial state, your health state, all of those things? Is, is Christ in you the hope of glory and the joy of your day? The comfort of faith, the blessing of being in the Lord's hand. Are you walking in purity? Are you walking in faith? Have you invested in eternity? Are you clothed with the white garments? Are your eyes anointed with the eye salve so that you might see? Let us check our hearts this morning and make sure that in a culture that is so wealthy, so provisioned, in a culture where things have changed so much for the better, we don't have to be guilty of the generation within which we live. Praise the Lord for it. Praise the Lord for medical science. Praise the Lord for, for lower poverty rates. Praise, praise the Lord for education that has touched uh, every corner of this, this nation and, and Western civilization. Praise God for that. But it is not the end. It cannot be the foundation upon which our hopes and our, our expectations rest. How are we doing this morning? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.